Welcome to the Pro-Life Team Podcast. I'm Jacob Barr, and I'm here with Dan Cole. And we're going to talk about some very beautiful stories of adoption, amazing stories about adoption, and how for him and his wife, it was their plan A. Dan, I'm excited to be on this podcast with you. Um, would you introduce yourself as if you were talking to a small group of executive directors and pro-life friends? Sure. All right. Well, hello, friends. My name is Dan Kalp. It is such a privilege to be here before you today. Um, I, uh, I have an amazing story and I enjoy telling it, but I use stand-up comedy to do that, to kind of unravel it for the audience. But it's an extremely pro-life story. And uh, I use my story to help tell your story all over the country and uh, hopefully raise more money than you've ever raised at previous events. That's, that's always my goal. But it's because of your life-saving work and you're my superhero. So it is really truly an honor to, to be able to do that work and to partner with you for the cause of life. Awesome. So, so Dan, you wrote a book. Uh, I did, what's the, yeah. What, what's the title of your book? The book is called Confounding the Wise, and it's a celebration of life, love, laughter, adoption, and the joy of children with special needs. Yeah, and so um, yeah, and so I, I read this. You you gave it to me at the um, the Heartbeat Conference, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. and I, I read part of it on my uh, flight home, and I finished I finished it up. It was really good. Like I had a hard time putting it down. It was really Great. enjoyable well, to read. I, I could hear your voice, like the way you talk throughout <laughs> that book, which made it just enjoyable to 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 uh, good to good yeah through it. Um, Great. So to tell I me, wish I sounded like Morgan Freeman for you, because then you would have heard his voice. But unfortunately, you heard yeah. my, my Rochester, <laughs> New York accent. <laughs> so my first question for you is, what does adoption represent to you? How, how would you summarize your feelings or thoughts around adoption? Well, adoption, as you know, from reading the book, was a huge part of my life growing up. Uh, my brother Matthew was born a year after I was. I was my parents' fifth child, and he was their sixth. And he was born in 1971, and he had Down syndrome. And a lot of people told my parents the same thing. They, they told them to get rid of him and put him away in an institution and forget he was ever born. And my parents, they didn't like that idea very much. So they made the radical decision back in the 70s to uh, keep Matthew and raise him. And Matthew ended up being such a blessing to the family that my parents went out and they adopted three more children with Down syndrome. And, um, and that's the experience I had growing up. Uh, you know, my older brothers and sisters were all 10, 11, 12 years older than I was. Uh, but my, my brother Matthew, who was only a year from me and my new siblings, we were all around the same age. So uh, again, that was a huge part of my life growing up. And um, so it shaped my being from a very early age. And one thing that I noticed was, uh, you know, growing up, people would see our family and they would say something like, um, so which ones are your real brothers and sisters? And I still get that today with my own children that we've adopted. People say, okay, so who are your real children? And um, 
And I would say, as even as a little kid, and I say it now as a dad, I'll say, well, they're, they're all my real children, or they're all my <laughs> real brothers and sisters, uh, because that's how I always felt. I, I mean, my parents treated us that way. There was never a, um, a, you know, a difference in the amount of love that they had for their biological children, as opposed to the children that they adopted. And I never uh, sensed any difference between my biological siblings and my adopted siblings too, because uh, they, we, our lives are so interwoven from an early age. And, you know, and I can testify to that as a parent. I don't love my biological children more than I love my, my adopted children. Uh, God, uh, that's, I think, one of the miracles of adoption. And, and your story with, with, you know, uh, of, of adoption when it comes to going to China and adopting, can you, can you sort of give us an intro to your story when it comes to adoption, you know, adoption in China? Sure. Well, so I used to years ago tour the country in a rock band and, um, and I was dating this woman, Elizabeth, and we were kind of on again, off again. And uh, at one point I, I was headed out on the road for about two and a half months and she felt this tug on her heart. Uh, she was a physical therapist. She still is, actually. And she just felt like God was calling her to, um, as she put it, and I love this phrase, and I, I actually will say this at the events for the, the PRCs, um, she felt like she wanted to do something for something greater than just a paycheck. And, and, and see right there, I know that uh, you know, all of the, the folks that work for PRCs knows exactly what she's talking about, because nobody's getting rich off of, you know, working at a PRC. And um, she found herself, because of that tug on her heart, she found herself in rural China, uh, working in orphanages, and um, uh, she, for, particularly orphanages for children with special needs. And when she was there, she, she witnessed some, you know, wonderful things about the people and the culture and the history of China. But she also witnessed some pretty horrendous things, uh, things that would make your, your stomach just churn. And she came home on a mission that her first children uh, were going to be adopted. She wanted to send the message to, to people that, you know, so many people look at adoption as a plan B for their life. You know, you can't have children, so, okay, we're going to adopt. But she wanted it to, to send the message that adoption can certainly be plan A for a couple. Um, God is on board with adoption. He's very excited about it. We have examples in scripture of adoption. And um, oftentimes that was his plan for his people. So she came home and she told me her story about the specific things that she witnessed, and it completely changed my life. Um, prior to that, I hadn't really uh, cared a whole lot about um, children, uh, especially ch babies on the other side of the world. And God used her story to crack my heart wide open. And, um, and also since then, it's given me quite a platform to be able to share uh, her story in a, in a very powerful and poignant way. And from my uh, you know, what I bring to the table is also humorously. Um, but so that, so when we got married, she said, I have two requirements for any man I'm going to marry. The first one is he has to be willing to adopt an orphan from China. And uh, she said, I have to get one out. If it's the only thing I can do, I have to do that much. And the second requirement was that that man had to be intensely good looking. Nice. <laughs> so I think she nailed it. Right. I mean, yeah. Check, check I off. was in Atlanta, Georgia <laughs> one time doing this bet and some lady yelled out for the back of the auditorium, who'd she marry? 
Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's funny. <laughs> so, um, so, 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 when it comes to going to, so, what, what have you, um, what was your experience like when it came to day one in China? Like, what did, what did it feel like to be, you know, there in China? when you went there at one point, like what, what did it feel like when you got off the plane and you know, there you are, what, what were your thoughts from back then? Yeah. Um, it, it was a lot of wonder and excitement, but also a little bit of anxiety, you know, stress level because I'm the kind of person that really, uh, change isn't, I'm not always great with change. And when I'm going into new situations, I I'm, I'm a little stressed. I don't suffer from severe anxiety or anything like that. I, you know, I don't need a comfort monkey with me or anything, but, um, I just, there was a little bit of stress. Like I'm going into this, you know, brand new country, different language, different money, uh, you know, different, even smell in the air. It was just very, very different. The one thing I had though, was my wife who had been there, on two previous trips. So she did that initial trip to China for a few months. And then after we were married, she did another uh, trip to China for a couple months. Again, I was on the road with the band. So she said, well, if you're going on the road with the band, I'm going to go to China and work. And she just felt such a, a calling to be there. So I had her with me. So that helped a lot because she knew her way around. She knew what we were getting into. And um, we were with a wonderful adoption agency that provided us interpreters. And we were also, for that those two trips, for two of our children, um, we were with a group of families that were also there to adopt uh, orphans from China. So you're kind of like on a bus together and you go to the hotel together. And, um, and as far as being in China itself, it, it, it was actually a wonderful trip. And by the second time we went, I was looking forward to it. You know, the Chinese people, and I'm kind of generalizing here, but they really want to please uh, the visitors to their country and, and people who are there, um, you know, whether it's for business or whether it's to adopt a child, they want to kind of impress and they want to serve you. Um, whether they like you or not is sort of irrelevant. Um, they, they just really want you to have a good impression. And so we were kind of, you know, served and, and there were these neat trips that were planned while we were there, you know, got to see the Great Wall of China and we went to Beijing and, and um, a really terrific trip to the point where the second time around, I, I didn't, I wasn't stressed about it. I was like, oh, great, we get to go back to China. Um, you know, later on, as you know, we went to Ukraine and that was stressful because neither of us had been there. And Ukraine is a whole different vibe. They don't like Americans all that much. Uh, maybe they, they like them better now <laughs> with all that's going on, but um, they really didn't. Um, and even though we looked more similar than we do to the people of China, uh, you know, they could tell you were American, which was really strange. It could tell you we're not from Ukraine. And um, we were met with a lot of, you know, harsh looks and, uh, you know, almost, almost felt very antagonistic, but then as you read in my book, there were some also really wonderful moments and people that we met there as well. So yeah, great trips. So, how do you think your adoption story, um, might have changed the Chinese government's outlook on adoption and, uh, children with Down syndrome? Yeah, so when we, and it's, a, it's an amazing story how we got connected with Simon. Um, he'd been abandoned in the woods in the middle of winter on the day he was born. And um, 
he was immediately he he was taken he was taken care of by the couple people that found him in the woods snow beginning to cover his little body and then relatively quickly somehow he got put into a foster home as a pat uh, that was that were run by a british doctor and her husband as opposed to an orphanage and so when he was in the foster home he met two uh wonderful people and their kids uh, named Stephen Curtis Chapman and Mary Beth Chapman and their, their kids who were there in China working like volunteering at the at this foster home uh, because they were friends with this British doctor and her husband. And so uh, if it wasn't for that chain of events, we never would have ended up with Simon, who we've been told is the first child let out of China to the U.S. who has Down syndrome. Uh, the Chapmans met him, kind of fell in love with him. He was so adorable. And they lobbied the Chinese government to put him on the waiting child list. Uh, one of the reasons he's the first is because at the time, uh, China was a very prideful nation and they didn't want the rest of the world to know that they had what they considered to be imperfect children. So they hide them and put them away just kind of like they did in our country back in the 70s, like my parents were, you know, were told to do. And that's what they would do. Um, they would say they, they would say they were adopting out children with special needs, but there were very corrective, uh, correctable issues like um, uh, cleft palates, you know, or, or club feet in some occasions, things like that. Uh, but to the extent of Down syndrome, they, they had never even really considered doing that. Um, once we adopted Simon, I don't know from their perspective I, uh, how, how it happened, but uh, after that, they began to realize, oh, there's parents out there who are willing to adopt these children. They didn't necessarily understand it, but they were willing to put them on the waiting child list. And wow. so, like I said, I give all the credit to the Chapmans because uh, if it weren't for them, uh, he, he wouldn't have... Uh, you know, he, he may be in an orphanage to this day, or even worse, set out onto the street to fend for himself. Yeah, so tell, tell us more about the family who found Simon um, covered in snow in the woods. What was that family doing in the woods when, that, when they happened to come across Simon? Yeah, they were, uh, they were hired by a wealthy landowner. And that part I don't quite understand because I didn't know that you were allowed to own land in China. It's a communist country. Um, but the story we were told, they were hired by this landowner to clear the woods of debris and, you know, downed branches and things like that uh, to get it ready for the springtime. Now, this was uh, his birthday's on J January uh, 28th. So spring was just a few months away, but apparently whoever owned this property wanted them. He hired these, these people who were relatively poor. Uh, he, he was paying them to go in and clear the property. And so as they were doing that, they came upon his little body laying there with snow beginning to cover it. Um, we had the opportunity the next trip about a year later uh, to meet that man. His name was Mr. Han, by the way, and his wife. And um, when we went for the second trip to adopt our daughter, Danielle, my wife had this crazy idea like, hey, I want to go meet the family that found our son and saved his life. And at first I was very unenthusiastic because I thought, you know, honey, uh, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> you know, like, how are we going to find the, uh, this man in all of China? How are we going to find him? But she had a one-page police report written in Chinese. She hired a college student to be our interpreter. She hired a driver and off we went. I think they were about, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half north of Beijing. 
And uh, if, I, if I remember my geography correctly, I might be off. Um, but we off we went and we went and ended up going to the police station. They uh, sort of translated that we showed on the police report. They told us where the woods was listed on the on there. We went to the woods. We walked around. Um, and then we got back in the car and off to this little village we went where the, the police told us was this man where he lived, Mr. Han, ended up finding him. Thanks to our driver, he, he flagged down a person who's walking along the road, uh, almost looked like a peasant, like an old school, you know, peasant. I hate to use that word, but he just looked very poor and, and he was an old man. He knew Mr. Han. So, oh, follow me, he said in Chinese. And we started walking through this little village, um, muddy dirt roads and um, almost like hut-like structures. And he walked right into their house. Um, it was a one-room sort of house with mud dirt floors. And um, their granddaughter was sitting there blowing up balloons. And she got excited because Americans were there. And, and she said, I'll run into town and I'll, I'll go get my grandpa. And she went into town and in he walked and met us. And it was a beautiful, beautiful time. We were able to tell him through our translator that, hey, our son Simon is alive and well. We showed him pictures him smiling, happy, running, jumping, playing, and, and just were able to show him that our son had value. He, he had a life that, that he was living because, because they, they chose to take care of him for a few hours until the police arrived. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's, wow, that's, a, that's such an awesome story of like just being rescued by people who happened to be there and- mm -hmm. Happened, wow. you know? Yeah. How, how, do, how do they keep him warm or how do they warm him up from the snow to, you know, in a, in a simple hut like place? Yeah, actually, they, I don't, there was like a small like shed on the property and they, they told us that they had uh, taken him into there. And they were just, you know, getting them warm and keeping them warm. And um, one of the things Mr. Han said to me was that he was strong. He said that through our interpreter, he was a strong baby because he was, you know, awake and alert and, um, you know, he wasn't suffering. Uh, he was, he was oh, doing wow. pretty well. He had other stuff going on too. He, he had a club foot. He had what's called an imperfera anus. Um, and that's where his intestines didn't connect to an exit. Um, and he had, he has on one thumb, my wife and I think it's pretty cool. It's an extra little thumb. And so we'll say, Simon, three thumbs up, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, oh, so, and then, and then you, it sounds like, so then you told, you mentioned Danielle. So Danielle was when you, uh, you yeah. Well, how many years later? Uh, did, it was one year later. Adoption, um, one year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which, which isn't that typical uh, adoptions sometimes are like a two, three year process. At least they were at the time. I don't know what they're like now. I don't even know if they're allowing adoptions because of COVID. Um, they, they probably have restricted those a great deal, but um, and I don't want to, I don't want to deter anybody from choosing to adopt from there. I, yeah. I just don't know. I, I'm just not up on what all the regulations are now, Yeah, I'm but at the time it could either. be a, a two, three year, four year process. But when you check a little, little box that you're willing to adopt a child with special needs, they accelerate that a little bit. And again, when you were checking the box, that meant you would take a child with a cleft palate or, or something very correctable. Um, and, and so his, his uh, adoption process was accelerated. And Danielle, um, she was 
listed on the waiting child list from China as the third child with Down syndrome being let out. There was a second child and he was spoken for. A family said they were going to adopt him. So my wife found this third child, said she had Down syndrome and that we should be her parents. So it was only one year. We Everything got accelerated. We went back to China. She was from a whole different province and a, and a different set of circumstances. Um, um, but if I remember correctly from your book, she didn't have the, you know, she had a different type of yeah. Down syndrome or something yeah, else so we, that was unique. Yeah, it's not Down syndrome actually at all. Um, we, we got her home and uh, a few weeks or a few months after getting her home, we get called into a doctor's office after they had done some genetic tests and they said, we want you to know your daughter does not have Down syndrome. Uh, she has something much more rare called Elfie syndrome. It's a genetic mutation. The official name is 9P minus, and it's a deletion of her ninth chromosome. She's, she's missing a chromosome. And um, uh, it's very rare. At the time, they told us there was about 125 people in the country with it, 250 in the world. Those numbers have gone up. It's still pretty rare, but they've gone up because they're better able to diagnose it now. But okay. um, uh, you know, they said, they, they, they kind of gave us what they knew about the condition. But I realized sitting in that office, the great sovereignty of God, because if they had known that she didn't have Down syndrome, something they were just becoming comfortable allowing out of their country, they, but she had something much more rare and complex that they couldn't necessarily explain, they never would have let her out. They would have kept her in the institution for the rest of her life. And uh, so I, I realized right then and there, the great sovereignty of God that he gave her a false diagnosis to bring her home to her parents. Wow, because if the Chinese government would have seen that it was a more rare case, they may have responded differently, perhaps. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, they may have. And I, I'm sort of uh, doing some guesswork there, but I know that they it's so rare, they wouldn't have really known exactly what to do with that, possibly. So, And, and Danielle had been abandoned uh, at a hotel when she was three or four years old. And that's most likely because that's when her cognitive differences began to emerge. And so could you imagine bonding with your child for three or four years, but living in such a culture that doesn't value differences uh, that you decide, uh-oh, she's different. So you put her in your car, you drive her to a local motel, and then just drop her off uh, to fend for herself. And, and that's mm -hmm. what they did with Danielle. So, so how is, so Danielle was found abandoned somewhere is that yeah at a hotel yeah oh wow yeah so so when you when you go speak at an event with mm -hmm. for a pregnancy clinic and your goal is to help them you know raise support money uh volunteers um what do you tell your story you know what's I know that you're, you, you, I mean, I'm sure you probably have a lot of good humor that you bring in at different spots, but when it comes to like your story, do you normally share the, your adoption stories or is that something that you know, executive directors usually experience when it comes to your, you know, the, uh, yeah, the event yeah. topics? Yeah. So I, I, I use my story again to, to link to the, the, the great work of the PRCs, the life-saving work that they do. And I do that in several different ways. Uh, but I, again, I use the, the first part of what I do is sort of stand up comedy, but it's all about, you know, the typical stuff you might see from a dad who does comedy. I'm talking about, you know, diaper changing, 
and uh, having a bunch of kids and birthday parties and, 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 you know, really get bringing humor to it. And, and the whole time I'm un unraveling this story for the audience. Uh, but they gets it definitely gets to points where there's some great poignancy. So it goes from, you know, laughter to like, you know, tears and, and being people being choked up. And of course that all culminates to the end of the story where I'll lead into, uh, what is a very powerful, what they call the ask, which is the financial appeal. And so I'm able to link that entire story to the work, the life-saving work of the PRCs and uh, really challenge the audience to partner with, with them for life that night. And I have a fairly good track record of getting people uh, getting centers more than they made the previous years because of, you know, there's sort of an art to the ask that a lot of uh, speakers don't necessarily know that, that art and all that goes into it. It's not rocket science, but I learned it from some of the best uh, speakers out there and was able to apply it to what I do. And, and so now I have a pretty effective financial appeal. Um, I don't, you know, I don't bat a hundred. I don't always bring in more than they got the previous year, but I, I have a pretty good track record for doing that. So, so what was what was day number one when you when you were the you know your first time speaking in front of, you know of an event for a pregnancy clinic? What did day number one look like? Was that before the adoptions or after your first adoption? It it, it was after our first adoption, uh, and and I don't know if we had gotten to our second adoption yet. I think we did, uh, but I did a terrible. <laughs> looking back on it. I wasn't, I didn't do a very good job. I didn't really understand the, and this was, we're talking like 15 years ago or so. Uh, I didn't really understand the work of the, the pregnancy care centers. Um, and I didn't also really understand my role as the speaker for the event. And it was down in North Carolina. And, uh, you know, they, they did fine. They made about exactly what they made the previous year. But I think back on some of the mistakes I made, learning what I've learned over the years, and again, from kind of studying the best of the best when it comes to that, um, I just realized I made some mistakes. You know, I, I had a ministry that I was connected with um, when I toured with the band that, uh, that it was like a, um, a relief organization where I would do pitches to sponsor a child from a foreign country. And um, I was pretty good at doing that. I did it that night. And, and I think back on it, I go, what was I thinking? Like that it was their event. I shouldn't have been pitching for this other ministry, but I just, I didn't know any better. I was just kind of, I felt like I was a hired gun and they wanted me to do what I always do. Uh, so I didn't do a very good job. So now, now I think, um, you know, I, I, after having done probably, you know, hundreds of them, I, I do a much better job. And, um, and it's really all about you that night. I, yes, I tell my story, but it, it's all for you. I'm, I'm there to work on your behalf. Yeah, so I, I think your, your story, especially the, the way it's laid out in your book is extremely inspiring. And yeah, it, it just feels like it's just, it's, 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 yeah, it's got, a, and it's got a strong, I would say it has a strong ass promoting someone to think about adoption for their life as following God's will. And it's, it, it links adoption with following God and serving God. And, and it's just, yeah, that's just really, and I feel like you really hit it, hit a home run right there. Uh, um, well, thank you. But going, but going back to that day one, you know, even though you might've, you know, you obviously have a learning curve experience when it comes to 
you know, knowing knowing how things work and, how, you know, you, you didn't have the advantage of doing it hundreds of times quite yet. But what inspired you to make that connection and get onto that stage the very first time? Like what, you know, what did that, what did it look like to get brought into that space of mm-hmm. helping a Princeton clinic raise um, support? You know, I just, I, I got a phone call one day. I, I had been doing, I had been telling my story uh, for a couple years up to that point. And I had been being, you know, hired as a, as a comedian or a comedic speaker, a humor, whatever you want to call it. And um, I, I had been doing, but I've been doing sort of like youth groups and churches and things like that. And then I, and I had a website up and I, I just got called one day from a woman who was a director down in High Point, uh, North Carolina. And she said, um, it, she was funny because she, she told me who she was, said they, they, they hire comedians for their fundraising banquets, which by the way, a lot of center directors don't understand this, but that is one of the best decision, decisions you can make for your fundraising banquet. And I could get into why later, but a lot of directors uh, still have it in mind around the country that they have to bring in the saddest abortion story that they can bring in for their annual banquet, which is a huge mistake because, uh, first of all, you know, pe- depressed people don't want to like write a big check. They want to be joyful when they give. And um, why make your banquet a downer? It should be a celebration of the great work that you do. Um, and, and also you don't have to do like a sort of abortion apologetics at your banquet. Everybody there that night is on board with that idea. They're all pro-life. That's why they're coming. So yeah. you can dispense with that. You're wasting time. You can just, again, celebrate the great work of the PRCs. But anyway, out of the blue, I get this call and I can't, I don't know how she stumbled upon me, but she, she somehow Google search or something. And she found my story and she said, you know, we'd like to hire you for this, uh, this banquet. We do it every year. Um, this is what we are. We're pregnancy resource center. Um, I think they used to call them pregnancy care centers and, you know, it keeps kind of changing and evolving. Um, and they, <laughs> what was funny is she said, um, you know, we, we've hired, uh, we've hired through a booking agency in the past and she was trying to kind of bypass that she wanted to like go directly to an artist that wasn't represented I wasn't represented at the time and so she said how much and I gave her a quote and she actually said listen you need to give me a much higher quote because (laughs) we have much bigger budgets and you're undervaluing what you do and I, I, so I was like, okay. And I, I still gave her a relatively, you know, very reasonable quote. Um, and, uh, and that, so that was my first time. I drove down to North Carolina from New York. Um, it's not because I'm uh, scared to fly. I fly all the time. It's because uh, if, I, I love to drive for one thing, but I always figure like if I can get paid in mileage as opposed to giving that to the airlines, then I, I would, that's like a little bonus for me. So I drove and I got some mileage out of it. Um, now with the gas prices, I, I don't know that it's, it's worth, worth it. I, I, would, I would probably fly to North Carolina now unless I book shows on the way there and the way back, which I, I tend to do frequently. So uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, you know, I, I, I stepped out, as you put it, stepped out on the stage, uh, but I didn't know enough. I just didn't, you know, I, I did my thing and it wasn't horrible. It's just that I know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and now I know. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, 
Yeah, good for her to reach out to you and bring you yeah, in. Because yeah. since then, how many, how many, if you were to estimate how many pregnancy clinics you have, uh, you know, done an event for, how, how you know, what's the, what's the ballpark range that you might have done since then? Oh, I don't, I don't even know. A lot, um, probably. Yeah, a good number. I'm, I don't have the most under my belt as some of my friends do in, in this sort of arena. Uh, but I, you know, I've, I've done a, a good number of them and it, and again, yeah. it's just been such a privilege. So, so when it comes to, uh, so you're, you're currently, um, through an agency. So if someone wanted to, you know, to, you know, to find you today, where, you know, which, how would they go about finding you to see if you're, you know, your availability and for booking? So, yeah, my, the, the agency that represents me for PRCs is Ambassador Speakers Bureau. And uh, Gloria is the agent that handles um, all of that sort of stuff. And she's terrific. She's uh, passionately pro-life. Um, many of your listeners are going to already know who she is, I'm sure. Uh, she just does a terrific job, makes it a painless process to, uh, to book me. And um, now anybody is able to find me. You know, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me, you know, Google, search me or whatever. I have a website. Um, you can find me that way and connect with me. But if you're connected with a PRC and you want me to come, I'll just hand you over to Gloria. Not because I'm, you know, too, you know, snooty to work with you myself. It's just that they're the ones that really introduced me to that arena um, and, and kind of trained me on, on how to do it. Yeah. And um, uh, so I just I let them handle all of that stuff. And, and um, I'm very appreciative for for them bringing me into that. You know, again, that first one I did was an isolated sort of call, but Ambassador introduced me to the whole world and I, I was able to um, understand it much better after I got on board with them. So, um, yeah, Ambassador Speakers Bureau, you know, get a hold of them or get a hold of me and then I'll steer you to them. Yeah. And, and when I first met you, I remember thinking, you know, that you were, you know, that you were helping with um, fundraising events as a speaker using your your, your comedy to really draw people in, but I didn't, I didn't know your story until I read, read your book about how you have literally changed, you know, made an impact, made, you know, a serious impact on, for adoption, for life, for, um, for those with Down syndrome or these uh, scenarios, um, and just that adoption world, like literally you have made a global, or at least a, you know, an impact on the Chinese uh, country in that space. Yeah, again, I don't know if we deserve any credit for that. I, again, I give it to the, the Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife, Mary Beth, uh, because they they had somehow they had some sway and were able to, to use their, I don't know if they use their celebrity or whatever it was, but they were able to, to get him on that waiting child list. All we did was uh, show up to, to bring him into our family. And um, and, well, and, you're on the you same know, team as the Chapmans. It sounds like <laughs> yeah, yeah. he, he might have been. He might have been the coach, but you, you're definitely one of the players on that team. Well, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm very grateful for their for their work. Put it that way. Sure. Yeah. Um. So so t how did you so the the your desire and interest in comedy came at a much well it sounds like it came much earlier in your life. What was your inspiration to to be a comedian? Oh man, you know, I, I've always loved comedy. I grew up on, on, on comedy. My, first of all, my home was a, a happy home. 
there was a lot of laughter. My dad was a really funny guy. My mom's a really funny woman. And, um, and laughter was a huge part of my life. And I was, you know, sort of, I'd be the class clown and stuff like that at school and um, being, being overweight my entire life, I would use it um, almost like a defense mechanism. I didn't have any deep seated issues or anything like that. Um, but I just, I always loved to laugh and I always loved bringing laughter to people, especially my dad. I loved uh, making my father laugh. It was just loads of fun when I could do that. And um, uh, I, I remember my first comedy record ever was, was Bill Cosby's Why Is There Air? And I was in about fifth grade. And I listened to that over and over. And then as I got older, I started to listen to other comedians. And of course, I grew up on late night uh, or uh, not late, I mean, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and uh, would see comics there. Um, and so when I was in college, I entered a comedy contest that was held in the cafeteria and it was very last minute. I, I was really nervous. I wasn't um, intending to enter, but a buddy of mine had signed up like weeks earlier. So he got up to do his thing. Uh, he was a guy I'd gone to high school with and now we're in college together. And he went up to his thing and the MC then said, well, he's unopposed. Is there anybody that wants to come up? And it was a contest that lasted weeks. And this is like the last week of it. And, um, and all my friends, you know, mutual friends were sitting around going, Dan, Dan, Dan. So I got up and I winged it. I told a few jokes that I'd been working on. And, um, and so at the end of that, the MC said, well, we had a comedy club in town called Yuck Yucks. And he, he said the prize was the winner was going to go on to the club. And, and so at the end of the contest, he, my, my buddy won, but he said, we'll have you go too, because, you know, you got up last minute and um, it was close and all that. So we both went to Yuck Yucks. We performed a set. And then uh, I signed up again for like a week later. And this is how dumb I was. I had no idea. I, that was the end of my comedy career back when I was 18 or 19 years old. And the reason being was I, I thought that I had to come up with the new five or seven minutes every time I went to the club. So when they invited me back the following week, here I'm racking my brain like, oh, I got to come up with seven new minutes, not knowing that, no, when you're a comedian, you work on the same material over and over and hone it and craft it. So at the end of the second week, I was like, oh, I'm done. You know, I couldn't think of anything else. So I never, I didn't go back into comedy for like a good I was like 15 years or so. And, uh, but I was touring with the band, as I mentioned, the lead singer of this rock group. When we stopped touring in about 2007, um, I wasn't sure what to do with my life. Uh, the other guys were fine. One guy had a, um, a family business. Another guy joined the National Guard and went and fought in Afghanistan. Another guy was, had his real estate license, but I didn't know what to do with my life because I put all my eggs in that basket. I thought we were going to be the next great Christian rock band out there. And um, so I knew I had this really great story. And I'm like, you know, I, I'm going to, uh, I think I got a friend who's a musician who had done a lot of work with our band and opened for us before and filled in on musical instruments when we were missing somebody. And he was a funny guy. And I said, you know, I think I'll have him. His name was Jason. I think I'll have him. Uh, I'll book another tour. We'll call it the stories, the songs tour. He'll do some songs and I'll tell these stories. And as time went on, the stories got funnier and funnier. And uh, my comedian buddies, they were a comedy musical duo named Dave and Brian. Uh, they were going to be at Syracuse University one night, and they about, which was about an hour from my home. And Dave called me up and said, hey, we're performing at Syracuse University. I know you're doing these funny stories. Do you want to come open for us? 
And I said, yeah, okay, sure. That'll be fun. So I drove out to the Syracuse. I opened for them and I didn't think I did particularly well or anything like that. But Brian pulled me aside afterwards and he said, Dan, I know you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. I think you should go into comedy. Um, and I, I thought, oh, you know, okay. Uh, I thought about that all the way home. I woke my wife up at like 1.30 in the morning, who was such a trooper. She put up with me being a tour, you know, touring musician for all those years. Woke her up and I said, I think I'm going to go into comedy. <laughs> and she sat up and she sighed. She went, or not sighed, but took a deep breath and went, okay, like here's the next, you know, part of your journey, I guess, you know. <laughs> So uh, I, the next tour that I booked, I booked without my musician buddy and I built myself as a comedic storyteller. So that was like the transition into being a stand-up comedian. Wow. So going back to your, you know, your, 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 your adoption stories and you know, the work with Princeton clinics and you know, your, your, uh, your history with comedy, so where would you, what's, if I asked you about where do you see God's fingerprints in, in, your, in your story serving him in these different capacities, what comes to mind as a story where you can see, you can say, you know, I feel like God really worked here in my life or, he, you know, he opened this door or, you know, somehow where, you know, where, where do you see God's fingerprints in your story? Well, all over from beginning to end. I mean, this whole full circle idea of me growing up in this home uh, with this incredible example from my parents to, you know, and having four siblings with Down syndrome to then being able to adopt the first child let out of China to the U.S. with Down syndrome. And that whole story, as you read from the book, Jacob, is miraculous. Yeah. I mean, if you remember, we started down the road of adopting uh, for adoption of another child, like of somebody else. And it was because I attended a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert and, and signed up to win a guitar and shoved it in the box. Um, I was there with a youth group. I was a youth group leader at a church. And I said, oh, Stephen Curtis Chapman's coming to town. Let me bring him to this college and he'll they'll see a concert. I got up to go to the bathroom. And as I'm walking through the lobby, I see this display. It says, when Stephen Curtis Chapman's guitar. So I was like, yeah, I pulled out a card, shoved it in, and then went off to the bathroom and went back to the concert. Um, that put me on the mailing list for the Chapman's ministry. It's, at the time, it was called Shohanna's Hope. Now it's called Show Hope. And um, I was getting these emails that as a single man, I didn't care a whole lot about because they were about adoption and stuff like that. But then as I got married and my wife had this story, this experience in China, and we were considering adoption, I started to pay a little bit more attention to their newsletters, you know, found out about this little boy with Down syndrome that they were, it said something like desperately looking for a family or for parents to adopt this boy with Down syndrome from China. And I, I called my wife and we had already started the process. We had paid a bunch of money in non-refundable fees. And uh, she laughed the first time she laughed at me. She was like, oh yeah, we're gonna just stop mid road and go adopt another child. Um, but anyway, all of those are God moments. I mean, if I never filled out that card, if if I hadn't been born into the family I, I had been born into, if I never met Elizabeth, um, all of it. You know, and, and my life hasn't been completely all roses. You know, I was married years ago to somebody else and um, uh, for five years. And at the end of that five years, she just, she left. And so I, I was very broken. I was very hurt 
we didn't have any kids. Thank, thank the Lord for that. Um, and I was in that broken period in that time of great devastation. That's the time that I met the band. And that's the time that I met my wife, Elizabeth. Um, and, and all of these incredible things happen. You could just see God cradling me and holding me and ministering to my spirit. He gave me the best friends in the world that I've ever had. And, uh, and then gave me the best wife a guy could have. And I look at my children today and I say, I would never change anything from my past because all of that led me down the road that, I, that I'm at now. Oh, that's sweet. So um, how would you consider encouraging a pregnancy clinic uh, team to consider adoption maybe you know, how, you know, how might you phrase it to, you know, a, a team of volunteers who are providing clients with advice or, or counsel, or they're advocating for clients for parenting and adoption, you know, how might you um, encourage them to look at adoption? Like, as you looked at it as a plan A, um, how might you, encur you know, encourage um, these people who are talking to women and unplanned pregnancy scenarios, how would you ask, encourage them to embrace the, the idea of adoption? Yeah, I, I think that you have to uh, tell the stories, you know, um, you, you have to beat that drum of adoption constantly in a positive manner. You know, what, what does our society show when it comes to adoption? So a lot of times you hear the horror stories, you know, you hear about the, the or, orphan that was adopted and came home and, and there was all these issues or problems. And, and um, sometimes adoption is kind of made fun of. It's like a punchline in the media and that sort of thing. But you have to uh, uh, tell the stories of people like me and, and so many countless other parents that have had these wonderful experiences with adoption. And, and let a woman know that that is really one of the most heroic things she can do is to uh, bring that baby, um, you know, uh, deliver that baby and, and, and then give that baby to another couple. And also, you know, one of the things they may struggle with more than anything is if they find out they get a prenatal diagnosis of some type of physical disability and, or, you know, like Down syndrome or Alfie syndrome, or I told you, I have a son who has spina bifida that that's getting more and more diagnosed in the womb now as well. But you have to be able to, to share the stories of parents who are willing to adopt children with special needs. That mom that comes into your center needs to know that there are parents that will adopt that baby no matter what. Uh, because they may think, oh, nobody's going to want my child if they have physical disabilities or challenges. And, you know, I, I also recommend to, to centers, you know, when you walk into a, a center, what do you see often? You'll see these beautiful blown up pictures of these beautiful children, you know, healthy children on the walls. And those are great. What I'd love to see included in some of those centers are like, like pictures uh, of my son in his wheelchair. Um, one of my favorite pictures I have of my son, Shay, is um, he's on a horse and his wheelchair is up on this deck behind the horse. He had gotten off the chair and onto the horse. And it's just, just this beautiful picture. I'd love to see pictures like that at centers so that people knew, you know, you say that you value life. Let's show them all aspects of life. So your son, Shay, is that, um, was he, who is he in your list of children? Like, how, does, how did he come <laughs> into your list of children? Are you losing track, Jacob? Uh, well, yeah. he's, 
the new name. I'm just trying to keep track. <laughs> yeah. So Shay was a, the third child we adopted. Okay. Um, and he he would we went to Ukraine two years after we uh, got Danielle from China, and so he he was one that my again my wife found online, and uh, we we flew back over to Ukraine, adopted him from an orphanage, and uh, brought him home. He was about to turn uh, five when we when we got him, and now that same son is 15 years old. And he just uh, he just went to his regional competition in track and field. He does uh, um, shot put and javelin and discus, and he also um, races his wheelchair. He is a wheelchair racer, I should say. He races, and uh, he just qualified for nationals. So he'll be out in Colorado this summer, uh, competing against the best of the best. Wow! So, so for those listening, how might you know, uh, how might they, people pray for you and your your ministry and your, you know, your your career slash ministry? You know, how, how could someone pray for you in an effective way? Oh, man, thanks for asking that question. I really appreciate that. Uh, the first thing I ask people to pray for is energy. <laughs> you know, uh, my wife and I are tired quite a bit. Uh, like the home I grew up in, though, I can say there's a lot of humor. We love to laugh in our home. Uh, but energy is a factor. It would be great. You know, we, uh, we, we just feel like we're, our home is chaos and we're running from one thing to the next all the time. Um, so there's that, you know, we dates are a little fewer and far farther uh, in between than we would, uh, we would prefer, but um, we still manage to have them. I do a marriage seminar at, at Heartbeat and Carinet uh, quite often. And, and um, uh, we find ways to have, have our date nights for sure. Uh, but the second thing would be, you know, when COVID came, all of my my appearances around the country got flushed right down the toilet within a matter of four or five days. And um, I'm in kind of the rebuilding stage now. So uh, you could pray for bookings. That's part of our family income. Um, that's how I earn a living. And, uh, you know, I, I, I could just use more of those uh, around the country and, um uh, so book me if you're you're listening to the podcast. Uh, I'd be honored yeah. to come, and uh, and I'm just I just been praying lately, Jacob, that God would even expand my my platform even more. Uh, so I appreciate you having me on the podcast. That's that's just oh, a, my another pleasure. Another. So thing. my fo- my follow up question is: What's the last passage you remember reading in the Bible, or the last passage that comes to mind that you remember hearing, like from a Sunday sermon? Well, uh, it's funny you say that because for the last uh, year and a half or so, I've been the interim associate pastor at my church um, okay. uh, because our, our pastor retired and um, I was first filling in for him. And then uh, while he, he went on a medical leave and then um, he decided he'd retire. <laughs> so uh, we're getting our new pastor in a few weeks. So I, I preach um, uh, every Sunday. And or no, excuse me, not every Sunday. I, I preach every few Sundays. I'll preach. Okay. Uh, we have an interim pastor. They just kind of had me stay on to help with this transition. So, um, uh, but the last passage that I read was for a funeral that I did this past Sunday. And it, it talked about Jesus Christ being our advocate and how he would go to the Father on our behalf. And he became the great sacrifice for us. 
So that would be the last passage. Uh, I'd have to look up the scripture reference actually, because um, actually, I might. Well, well, the Dan the Dan Colt paraphrase is probably fine. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the the Colt version. <laughs> Yeah. But you know, all of the scriptures that I read in funeral, that was for the main message. I always open funerals. I don't do the typical, you know, everybody does Psalm 23. Um, you know, I, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Um, I, that, that, I don't use that at funerals unless I'm asked to by the family. I love opening, and, and I think your audience will appreciate this. I'll come out at the beginning of the funeral before I even say a word, and I start reading Psalm 139. Um, which is, you know, that God knows us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully named. All the days uh, laid out for, uh, uh, all the days of our lives were laid out before us, before God, even before one of them came to be. Again, Dan paraphrasing. But all of those wonderful things about the value of life and um, that even when we're in the darkest of darks, uh, he is still with us. So I open with that. And then in every message that I do for a funeral, I use, also use Roman, uh, Romans 8 that talks about who will separate us from the love of God, neither you know, um, uh, height nor depth or famine or sword or nakedness or hunger. And it talks about us being more than conquerors. So I think all of those are incredible, incredible scriptures um, so and, and, and part it, of this, this yeah. movement. So how would those three passages or, you know, the passage of 139, the value of life and, and from Psalms, as well as Romans 8, how might, if you were to think about those passages when it comes to your, your need for more energy, your need for more bookings and in the, in the concept of expanding your platform, how do those passages speak to those three areas of your life? Wow. Now, now you're putting me on the spot. Now you're trying to convince your me. time. <laughs> oh no, this is. This is one of That's my great. favorite things is to ask someone like what their need is, what's the last thing read in the Bible, and how does it apply? That's uh, that's <laughs> that's pretty sneaky, Jacob. But uh, yeah, that's a good strategy. I like that. You ought to be a pastor, you know that? No, no, I'm, I'm more of a repeater. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Well, uh, you know, the, the Psalm 139 speaks to that God has ordained everything. So, and, and I did learn that during COVID. You know, yeah. when when all of the so the year leading up to COVID was already my worst year in like 12 years of doing this. And I had no idea why, but I had less bookings on the calendar, but that April was going to be my best month of the entire year. I had uh, appearances month, all over yeah, the place. Yeah, the month of April, 2020, right? That's when everything yep. just went. Yep. And I, I was so like, like for months, I was like, oh, I just got to get to April. I got to get to April financially. And then it was like, I think the first five days of April or something like that. I just saw them fall off the calendar and I was beside myself. I was a wreck. And I remember being in my car uh, in the driveway sobbing. My wife actually walked out to the car and, and I was just, mm. I, I couldn't believe it. I thought God was really out to get me. Um, you know, I made it all about me, not, not to mention the whole world was going through this. Um, yeah. uh, but what I saw during that year was how, again, God, uh, like I mentioned, when my wife had left me back in the early 90s or the late 90s, um, God cradled me and held me and provided for our family in really incredible ways. And we ended up looking back on that year going, oh, my gosh, we had blessing. Like there were blessings to us that we like never, never expected. And and I realized, OK, um, 
you know, it was during that year again that my, my, my pastor gave me a call and said, can you fill in for me for a month or two? And then that turned oh. into, now I've been doing it a year and a half. Um, uh, I saw God do that, he, that he was in charge the whole time. So now I've told people, if there's another COVID or another, you know, and I hope not, I hope there's not another time where they shut everything down. Um, I'm much more trusting and filled with faith to be able to handle that. And going on to Romans 8, it says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, you know, um, uh, that, that's like a, you know, brave heart kind of thing, <laughs> you know, that's just yeah. not that we get by, you know, that's more than like, what is a conqueror? A conqueror goes in and takes down everything and, and wins the land. The, the Bible tells us we're more than that, you know? Uh, so yeah. And, and, and then the, the main passage that I preached from that talks about Jesus being our advocate, I can see that Jesus is always my advocate. Uh, he's always going to the father on our behalf. So thank oh, you for, beautiful. for, thank yeah. you for turning those into, in, you know, in, into my yeah. life. I, that, that's wonderful that I, I could reflect like that in those few moments. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate this time to talk with you and to hear your story. I mean, I mean, reading your story, honestly, was just phenomenal. And I would encourage people to find your book on Amazon or I'm assuming it's on thank Amazon, you. right? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Sure. And it, and it was uh, Confounding the Wise by Dan yes. Cole. Okay. Yeah. And that's from the scripture that says um, that God, um, God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And I always love that scripture. And, you know, and I thought about it in regards to my parents and in, in regards to my life, how foolish it must have looked to the rest of the world as they looked at the choices my parents made. And yet the wise are confounded by, you know, they're confounded by that. Um, when, when, when God puts his thumbprint on, on people's lives like that. So, and, and before you, you, you end this, Jacob, I do want to say that we had two more biological children. So uh, I, I want to do a shout out to my daughter, Emily, who's 10 now, and my, my little son, Stephen, who's four. And they awesome. both keep me hopping too. <laughs> so you have five kids. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 That feels a minivan. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about it. Yeah, it does. We're filled to the top. It, it fills a wheelchair accessible minivan, no less. Okay. Um, but I, uh, uh, I was thinking about it. I thought, you know, I, I just think it, it keeps me young, you know, like I'm, I'm 52 years old. I do not feel 52 despite the gray and, you know, in this here, I don't feel like a 52 year old. I feel younger. And, and I thought, let's see, um, all my friends who I graduated high school from, they're actually on to grandkids now. I guess that could make them feel young. But, you know, if my wife and I like started heading towards retirement, what would be, you know, would we be going to play bingo or, you know, <laughs> craft fairs or what, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to my daughter's picnics at school and, and chasing my four-year-old around on our trampoline and stuff like that. It, it's bound to keep me young. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's five kids will definitely keep you young. And that's, it's just, and all the different stories. I feel, I feel like there's just so much, you know, you can see God's fingerprints and his working through, through the stories and the, and the stories of adoption seem to have a special story when it comes to what pregnancy clinics um, need, you know, need to share for, for encouraging these women that are in hard situations who might be seeking abortion for them to consider, 
you know, not just parenting, but also adoption as a primary choice that yeah. is life-giving and beautiful and yeah, and just full of life. Yeah, and and but you know, um, I I think even beside the adoption stories, the the value of life story is really what connects with with the centers, uh, because I'm I'm able to tell them by the end of my my evening with them that hey, you are my superheroes for your life saving work, and this is one thing I say, and I during the appeal, and I mean it every single time. I'll tell the audience. As they're writing out their checks, I'll say, this is my favorite moment of the night, because as I look at you writing out those checks, I realize that you are the people that would never let a child be abandoned in the woods in the middle of winter on the day he was born. And, um, and I mean that. And, and those women that work for those centers and, and those men, too, um, they, they, they are my superheroes because of the value of life that they are fighting for on a daily basis. That's meaningful to, to me and my my children and my wife. Yeah, and they're the real superheroes. You know, you know, superheroes in the movies are not really saving lives. Those are just fictional stories. But yeah, with a lot of special the, effects. And, yeah. yeah, and the superheroes in the Princey clinics are actually saving lives and helping people right. um, find the value in life. Yeah. And that's one of my closers too, just before the appeal. Um, I tell a funny story about watching the, the pilot episode of the TV show, Batman. And, uh, you know, that's not the cool looking Batman of today. You know, that, that was the polyester pajama wearing Batman of yesteryear. But I, I tell a story about that and how, when I was a kid, I saw that I wanted to be a hero when I grew up, but how, um, as I grew older, my view of what a superhero was radically changed. As I looked at yeah. my siblings, as I looked at my parents, as I looked at my wife, who really is my ultimate superhero, um, and, and then I, I tell them um, all the all the folks. I have them stand up, and and I say, "You are my heroes. That's why I'm here tonight. Is because yeah. of you. You're yeah, the, the real superheroes. Work in pregnancy clinics. They work at churches. They work in the firehouse. You know, right. helping people, getting people out of burning buildings. They work at the hospitals." Yeah. Um, they, they work in these places where people are really being helped. Um, yeah. you, they don't work in Hollywood. Holly, I mean, Hollywood is fine, but saving lives, you know, happens locally in these right. certain places like pregnancy clinics and churches. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. So after I, uh, finished reading, when I read your book, I, I, I was making notes and highlighting. I was really enjoying it. But then I didn't oh, intend to keep it. I intend I gave it to someone at my church and I recycled it. So I would encourage people who, who get a copy of Dan's book, don't let it collect dust on your bookshelf. But yeah, make yeah. sure you give it to someone else who needs to read it because it's that good. Oh, thank you very, very much. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. Thanks. I'm, I'm working um, on some other books now. So, but that one took God. me like seven years to write because I'm so slow at doing it. So uh, hopefully I'll do this next one a, a little bit sooner. Yeah, you got to the learning curve on the first one. Eh? You'll be uh, yeah, next I hope so. get done in four years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so would you would you uh, close our, our podcast by, you know, praying um, for, you know, maybe praying for... Um, the adoption world or in the, in the pregnancy clinic world, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be honored to do that. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Lord, I, I pray right now for uh, all of those volunteers and all of those staff that are in centers scattered 
uh, all over the country and in other parts of the world as well. I pray that you would renew their strength. Give them energy, God, as I prayed for tonight or I asked for. Um, I pray that you would uh, affirm their life-saving work, that they would know that they are heroes because you called them to where they are and they answered the call. I pray ultimately, God, that lives would continue to be saved from the mother who walks into that center confused. I, I pray that you would help shine a light on her confusion and, and use uh, those volunteers and staff to do that. I pray that for the mother who is struggling because they're carrying a child who has special needs or disabilities or challenges, I pray that they would be convinced to give birth to that child anyway. I pray that adoption would be a drum that gets beat over and over and over again by Christians in our country and by the centers that they would know that there are people out there who will take these babies and love them and bring them into their family. So God, thank you. I thank you for the life-saving work of the centers. I thank you for Jacob and his podcast for enlightening people and shining a light on uh, so many different people that, that work for the cause of life. Uh, God bless their work and walk beside them in the fight and ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah, the, the prayer for energy, bookings, and uh, ex expanding territory, you know, that's that's definitely true for you. And it's also, I think that's also true for pregnancy clinics. Yeah. Uh, they need more client bookings or appointments. Like that's, an, uh, you know, and the energy to, you know, to keep keep on the good fight and yeah, expanding yeah. into new territory, especially with Roe being overturned soon. You know, we're going to have to expand into the the ways that keep serving women and unplanned pregnancies under new, you know, in, in a new um, under new laws or new legal. Yeah, a new a new legal uh, scenarios. Yeah, it's becoming a new world. And um, you got to duck and weave, you know, all the time. Right. When you're in the fight. Yeah. Blessed us. You have blessed us. 